This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it is only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, Farewell Tour and Anatomy of the Power Broker. We'll speak with New York Times reporter Mark Leibovich about his current novel, As Yet Unfinished, which delves into the all-too-cozy power matrix of Washington, D.C. And then we'll talk to Mike Allen of Politico and Pentagon Press Secretary Jeff Morrell about their 11-day trip around the planet without going Secretary of Defense Robert Gates. The optics on this trip, people, redefine the way it's done. So let's bring in Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, as you know by now, was production chief in the Clinton administration as I was production chief in the George W. Bush White House. It's good to have you back, pal. Adam, great to be with you. This is the week of polyoptics. Yeah, no, we had New Hampshire, uh, Manchester, New Hampshire. And uh, for people who are tuned in early, I thought it was a wonderful glimpse of what we're about to get into. Yeah, the WMUR CNN debate, the first major debate of the campaign season at St. Anselm. What do these debates represent? It's it's really for the commentariat. There's not a lot of people watching. In campaign headquarters around New Hampshire, it's about visibility. Can you get a lot of signs out on the street with a candidate? And, you know, can you possibly introduce a, a major new presence to the campaign that hasn't been there already? I, I spent time as a producer at ABC News producing candidate debates uh, just like this. And, uh, you know, we sort of had that star emerge feeling this week with uh, Michelle Bachman um, because she she sort of jumped in and was emotional and proclaimed it, Josh. The lighting was great for her. Uh, the presence was great for her. The comparison with sort of yesterday's uh, yesterday's personalities like Newt Gingrich and Ron Paul couldn't have been more stark. So, and against Tim Pawlenty, who's kind of come out as a little vanilla, you know, she seems she seems like Sarah Palin with a, with a bit more substance to her. Yeah, you know, I put the kids to bed the other night and uh, was surfing around and found Leno. And, uh, you know, he's talking about the debate. He had this great line, you know, two big winners of the Republican debate. You know, one's a tall brunette with pretty hair. The other's a congresswoman from Minnesota. <laughs> Everything you need to hear about what this yeah. thing was about. We And, you know, come to, th- to think that a few weeks ago we were worried that there wouldn't be enough candidates in the debate, let alone personalities. Now it seems we've got them in abundance. Oh, my God. And, and we, there's still more to get in. But, you know, when you talk about the people who understand the eccentricities of Washington personalities. I love one reporter. He's, he's with us today. His name is Mark Leibovich of the New York Times, and he's somebody you know really, really well. Full disclosure, I'm not just friends with Lebo. I've been pals with him since, you know, we were probably toddlers uh, growing up in the not-so-hard scrapple town of Newton, Massachusetts, and he's made a career out of understanding the color of Washington. A few weeks ago, he won the National Magazine Award for his 8,000-word uh, profile of Mike Allen and Politico. 
and about all as the the chronicler of all things Washington working around the clock. Well, this works out pretty well for us actually because Lebo, as he's known, Mark Lebovich, the New York Times, uh, who is a fantastic writer, uh, is not only with us on the show, but so too is Mike Allen uh, of the Playbook. He just got back from a great trip uh, with the Secretary of Defense, and uh, you know. This is the kind of show that for, for, for us as polyoptics practitioners and people who give analysis that lets us really bring you uh, behind the curtain with the folks who report the news and help to create the news, Josh. To, to think that we have Lebo and then Mike Allen uh, who, who sort of touch the two spectrums of reporting, the person who is so digital, so new media in Mike Allen, and Mark Leibovich, who has really hit the cover off the ball in the New York Times, writing these long-form profile pieces, the kind of extensive reporting and color and imagery that you just don't get online that has to find its way into a format like the New York Times Magazine. We're going to see both sides of the spectrum today. Well, let's bring him in because we've got him here. Uh, Mark Leibovich uh, of the New York Times. Welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks, guys. What a great introduction. Uh, and yes, it's all true. Uh, Josh and I did, I think, start out together huddling around the Smith Corona, which leads to the question, Has did anyone ever work on anything other than a Smith Corona? <laughs> Was there any other kind of typewriter back before computers other than Smith Corona? Well, you know so. that uh, Phyllis King had the old Royal that I used from time to time. I, I hate to tell you, fellas, that uh, I don't want to date myself, but I'm not sure I ever worked on a typewriter. You know, I, I actually, I think this is where I, I'm supposed to jump in and say that everything I still write, I write on the Royal or the Smith Corona. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I handwrite everything, and then I input it into my computer. So, Lebo, uh, you have been absent from the pages of the New York Times largely since uh, November 3rd, 2010, uh, when you sort of put the capstone on the campaign, the call no politician wants to make about the concession call after a national election. And you emerged a little bit. Uh, a few weeks ago, but what have you been up to since then? Uh, well, essentially, I have been uh, on a leave to write a book uh, for uh, for Simon and Schuster. The, the Times has been nice enough to give me essentially uh, a year off, which uh, hopefully will end in November, and I can come back to being a newspaper reporter again. The book is on uh, essentially kind of the the collision of new media, politics, money, and celebrity in Washington, and how. Um, Washington has sort of uh, enjoyed this this really uh, sort of heady, gilded age of very, very easy money and easy fame, and, and the city seems to be feeling very, very good about itself at a time when the rest of the country uh, seems kind of down on the place. So uh, it's sort of looking at the last five, six, seven years of, of Washington as we've sort of moved into a, a contemporary era that has been unlike any other. And, um, yeah, I'm occasionally doing pieces for the Times. I'm kind of popping up here and there, but I'm um, trying to keep my head down and uh, focused on the book until I have to go back to work, which, uh, again, hopefully will be in time to get to Iowa uh, while there's still a few good uh, stories left to do before the caucuses. You know, one of the things that comes to mind as you talk about that intersection of all of those elements of Washington is that to perceive it, to see it is to be a part of it to some extent, and uh, you've 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 been able to do that, and you've been running in these circles at least uh, through them uh, for a long time. And so, your appreciation and insight of the players and and what transpires and how transactional this town 
really is is truly firsthand. It, it is, and it can be problematic at times. I mean, in in that, in some ways, it would probably be easier to write about this place as someone who just drops in and drops out, someone who has no real ties to the community, no real ties to the other reporters, to the public figures. But this is a very, very small town. It's a, it's a fishbowl of a town. And I, you know, I've chosen to live here. I've chosen to work here. I've chosen to cover politics. And this is a world that, uh, you know, to be honest, I love. And you, you just sort of intersect with a lot of people you're covering about. And I think that, that one of the things I've tried to do is be honest about that and be transparent about the fact that, that we are all essentially participating and if not the same narrative, a, a, a interjoining ma- narrative, which is why topics like Mike Allen and Politico and things that have really leveraged the small town quality of Washington in this day of age have day and age have appealed to me. Um, again, though, I mean, it's I don't pretend to be not a part of this community because this is this is the world I live in. You were uh, you're saying that you'd like to be able to pass in the manuscript in time to get to Iowa when there's still some action to cover. We were talking a couple of weeks ago to Scott Lehigh, an old colleague of yours, who was uh, hitting the hustings and following t- uh, uh, Mitt Romney and John Huntsman. And, you know, he, he talked about covering New Hampshire at a time when it's really just the, the living rooms and the coffees and the small towns and how he still enjoys that, but he doesn't quite enjoy the zoo. And when it comes to right before the primary, right before the caucus and into the general election. And so much of your style is based on painting that color of the quieter moments of politics, campaigning, and governing. Do you think you might be a little too late to this party? Um, yes and no. I mean, I, I think in some ways the 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 notion of sort of the, the one-car caravan, the sort of stage of the primary where you know, a reporter can really have a candidate and maybe a few staffers to him or herself is outdated. I mean, I think in this day and age where, well, first of all, the the media is so much bigger and there are a lot more, you know, videographers and 20-something embeds traveling around with people who might run for president one day. Um, it, it does, unless you are a real second or third tier candidate, it, it makes, you know, any kind of intimacy difficult. Now, I've had some advantages over the years. I mean, part of it is I, I did start in an era before the embeds, before Politico, um, and so I got to know some of these people, you know, in a in a at an earlier stage. Uh, the other thing is it, it helps in some way to have history with a lot of the elected officials who either work in Washington or who aspire to being in Washington, because this is where I'm based. And and frankly, um, it also helps to to be at a newspaper that is a national brand and that that candidates are going to want to hopefully uh, talk to and, and you know engage with as a way to reach voters across the country. Talking about embeds, which is this word that we know, but I think that the public doesn't appreciate what that means. In 2004, I first met you at a cocktail party here in Washington that ABC News threw. Uh, Peter Jennings was still alive. We were at 101 Constitution, and they were announcing the embeds for the 2004 presidential campaign. Robert Gibbs was still the press secretary for Senator John Kerry, Kerry yeah. at the time, just to bring you back. But this idea of putting young reporters with digital cameras and, and attaching them to these campaigns where they wouldn't go out and come back... They were on the road with them permanently. Their job was to file, to create the images and find the stories that uh, that were really the province of hardworking print reporters 
who who knew how to do this and and, and traveled light and and didn't right. have a big wake behind them. Um, from that though, we have had this explosion of that kind of coverage. Yeah. And for what Josh and I often think about the polyoptics of campaign coverage and and even governing, people have suddenly become aware that if you want to project an image, you need to be able to capture it and 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 f- fulfill it yourself. Right. What, talk about that for a second, how you've seen that explode over the last eight, nine years. Well, I mean, I think the notion of control is is become very, very different. I mean, I think, again, when you have videographers all over the place, bloggers all over the place, full-time embeds all over the place, um, it's, gonna, it's going to, you know, foster an atmosphere, I think, of more, even more paranoia, frankly, than, and more caution than what we had before. I mean, w- one of my favorite or actually I, I think O four is an interesting campaign because um I mean I, I did get in early then. I started in O two and I did a story on on John Kerry and his wife, uh, Teresa. And this was right after uh the McCain campaign of two thousand, you know, even though it was unsuccessful. Right, that Maverick campaign and yeah. the, the primaries that got ugly early and yes, then ended. But there was a romance around the sort of um just letter letter rip sort of ethic that John McCain was able to um, you know was was able to convey in in 2000, and I remember Kerry saying, you know, again this is mid 02, uh, I'm going to be just like John McCain. We're going to just be ourselves. We're going to talk about what we want to talk about, and um, you know let the cards fall where they where they may. And uh, he spent a fair amount of time with me. Uh, Teresa Hines Kerry spent a fair amount of time with me. Uh, they were probably, they would say, too candid, uh, especially with the tape recorder running. And, um, you know, it was a story that got some traction. Um, I would leave it to others to say what kind of traction. But um, essentially, I remember comparing that to what Kerry was like at the end when he, you know, he had won his party's nomination. And, you know, we had sort of started this embed culture and this blog culture and this uh, real fishbowl culture that is, you know, very different in 04 than it even was in, in 2000. Um, and just watching the sort of, uh, I don't want to say lobotomy, but, 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 but watching the complete straitjacket that comes over a candidate once he experiences this environment for a matter of months, um, or even years in, in the case of, of a modern campaign. You know, uh, <clears throat> moving ahead to, uh, to 2008, Lebo, and that, and the way in which a candidate has to get inside the bubble, the way the the old hands come back, the McCurries and Lockhart's get on on uh, Kerry's plane, and it be, and it basically becomes you know, don't say anything. The time for long profiles and and opening yourself up is somewhat over. Mm-hmm. I found fascinating what you did toward the end of the Democratic primary process in two thousand eight, because Hillary Clinton certainly would have been defined in such a way with the bubble that was around her for most of her campaign. And then she did something that Barack Obama did this week. She went down to Puerto Rico and you tagged along. And I remember your reporting, it was done in such a way in which she seemed to sort of know the fate that was in front of her. And that got through in your reporting and it made for a much more real picture that you painted of a candidate sort of in the, in the last chapter of a campaign. Yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, I would say two things on that. I mean, I, I think there is nothing more sort of transparent than a candidate that knows his or her fate, um, you know, especially after a really, really long, raw, hard-fought grind like like the 08 primary was. 
Um, the, the other thing was, I mean, that was that was sort of in the category of I, I've been I had been lucky in that campaign to work for a newspaper, the, the Times, that allowed me to sort of step away from the day to day the day to day story, which I typically don't do anyway. And I wrote a series of bio pieces on on Senator Clinton, then Senator Clinton, and and really was able to delve into you know certain chapters of her life that even you know, given the fishbowl that she had been living in for many, many years, still were pretty much un, un, uncharted. And uh, it allowed me to spend some time with her. Um, you know, and also, I think a bubble just sort of just relaxes after several months. Um, people drop off, it gets smaller. Uh, the candidate, you know, has less to lose, it, it seems. And um, again, I mean, I think part of what I like to do is don't ignore the bubble, but actually write about it as part of of the environment that we're all operating in. I mean, it would just be dishonest to to convey to readers that this photo op is is reality. I mean, we are all sort of operating in this funhouse mirror um, environment that can be very uh, distorting if if you don't you know if you if you lose perspective on it. And that that often is the uh, the big challenge for for viewers, for readers, for listeners. Uh, if you're not getting uh, even a 360-degree perspective for somebody who's reporting for you from in the bubble. Everything seems well too crafted. I, I love the comment that you made a little earlier about the straight tra- the straight jacket sort of effect that this culture has on a candidate. I was thinking about, you know, my time at ABC News and how, you know, usually the brass ring is to get the access of a, you know, a day in the life or behind the scenes, but the reality is, and I, and I can attest to it, having jumped the fence and and done this work for for President Bush, uh, if you take journalists on a behind the scenes or a day in the life, it's anything but a day in the life. Right. It's all centered and crafted around the moments that you can share. It is not uh, a pullback of the curtain, but just a secondary stage show going on for the cameras that have right. inexorably changed what they're looking at just by being there. Right. No, I think that that's absolutely true. And I think one mistake a lot of people make, both as consumers of news and as, as news gatherers, is to, again, ignore that. I think um, you there is a sort of built-in meta to <laughs> this process now. Um, and again, this gets to the merger of the media and 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 politics and and the fact is i mean one of the things one of the characters in my book is is tim russert and i'm i'm focusing um somewhat at the beginning of the book of what the effect of his death has had and and just sort of the the mega event here in washington around his his funeral and memorial service and his his the wake and basically the week long tribute or the two week long tribute that that accompanied his death and you know one thing you realize is that you're you're in a room full of people in which the people on TV, the broadcasters, are probably far more famous than than certainly the politicians they're covering. Um, and and one thing you realize is that it's all the same green room in some ways. And and Washington is, I mean, Matt Lauer, you know, right after Russert died, um, had some sort of schmaltzy thing where he said, you know, we're all looking down. Tim's probably looking down on us from heaven's green room right now. And and um, that was an interesting moment where uh, we sort of think that the, the Lord's eternal reward mimics that of a uh, place of eternal reward mimics a TV studio, which I thought was revealing. But but also, you know, again, we are of a class. And uh, when I say we, I don't mean me personally, but I mean we in Washington are sort of of a class in which, again, um, 
people are of a certain wattage. Um, you know, celebrity does sort of transcend ideals and, and boundaries to a certain after a certain point. You know, Josh and I did a uh, a show last week here on Polyoptics on uh, POTUS on Sirius XM, and we talked to the the creative guys behind a, a company based in Nashville, Tennessee, called Passcode Creative. You know, you probably have no idea who they are, but you know their work. These are the guys who produced the Mama Grizzly spot for uh, Sarah Palin. Right. They just came out with a new, uh, very grabby uh, video about the bus tour. But but the reality is, and, and I think you've touched on this, and I'm hoping to get you to help us sort of put your stamp on it. People want to communicate certain things. They're videotaping and shooting and doing their own communications. Um, and what, what's, what's ultimately happening is they're pushing out any real credible journalism. The communication is safer and can at least be portrayed as being more real and authentic through their eyes. And oftentimes it's so effective that people will, will buy that same uh, feeling of it. But how does it change the journalist's uh, approach to, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff? I mean, how, how do you insinuate yourself back in there as a trusted source to guide people when... Everyone's pretty damn happy getting the uh, the inside scoop. Well, it's a great question. I mean, I think, um, I mean, the, que- the, 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 the real part of that question is, you know, how happy is everyone? I mean, I think there has always been wheat and chaff in, in this business, obviously. There's always been earned media and, and what is it, paid media? Is earned media and paid, paid media. Yeah. Now you're talking the language. Right, right. So, <laughs> um, look, I mean, I'm... I'm Trying not to be anyone's earned media. I mean, at least earned media that you would that you would want. I mean, I, I don't want to be someone who does hatchet jobs, and I don't think, want to be someone that people can't trust. But I, I think that um, again, I mean, Sarah Palin is a great example of someone who has made you know things like Facebook, things like Twitter, things that she controls. Um, you know, her her Fox um, platform to some degree. Uh, you know things that she controlled and sort of leveraged it for for all it's worth, um, and you know which is not to say that she hasn't come under some withering you know investigative um, or even sort of slapshod coverage, but uh, again um, I, I think that we just have different tools now, but it's the same basic paradigm of of earned versus paid media. Lebo, y- y- you were talking about Russia's funeral and the aura that surrounded it, and. Uh, you were referencing really the elite of Washington that came out from people like Matt Lauer to the fellow Sunday talk show host and everybody who was anybody in Washington. And yet you've also made a lot of room in your reporting for going back sometime for sort of the the underworld of Washington. Uh, you know, when you were first writing for business, you did a, an incredible series on Michael Saylor and, Michael, and micro strategies that, you know, some people may remember. And then, you know, you've just had a piece out uh, last year about um, Jack Abramoff, who had once been one of those elite and then was uh, uh, went to prison and then was out in a halfway house and working at a pizza joint. How do you decide w- that it's time to take a step back and look at a character and, and what kind of different elements do you bring to that kind of reporting? Um, well, I, I think, you know, it's sort of every, every case is different. I mean, in the Michael Saylor story, I mean, I, I always sort of look for, you know, quintessentially human stories, whether it's business or politics or whatever. And, and that was a great rise and fall story about a guy who um, essentially made and lost a billion dollars in the same day, um, which, you know, became a bit of a, 
a great little sort of uh, bracketed tale for that age. Uh, again, I mean, the Jack Abramoff story, um, I mean, the backstory there was I was sitting at my desk at like uh, 1 o'clock, and my editor came over and said, hey, Jack Ab- Abramoff is working at a kosher pizza place in Baltimore. Uh, we want a day story. Can you head up there? And, you know, I had the bullseye on my back, so I went up there and I wrote the day story. Um, but again, I, I think that these are fundamentally human stories, and um, I, I think that they're compelling whether they are part of an underworld or an overworld, because, I mean, everyone is human ultimately, and, and I think um, you always do have to be on the lookout for the story that will convey the humanity of, of what it is we're doing. I wonder, uh, in this book that, uh, that you are working on, it, it has to expose... And I, and I don't mean that in an expose kind of way, but you have to yeah. be able to take people inside and get at the heart of some of the things that people don't appreciate. Uh, one of those things, I think, may be this idea that beyond the power players of Washington is a, is a whole other set uh, of, of wives and, 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 and staffers that together create bases of power and how they interact, and they do in different ways in different places. But, uh, you know, if the president is the decider. Uh, in Washington politics, power is uh, cultivated in a lot of different ways in a lot of different places. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the book is going to be an ensemble of, you know, it'll be a mix of, of principals, of staffers, of, of some lobbyists, some media people. And and again, it's sort of a, it's symbiotic. I mean, it's interconnected. Um, a lot of people can do very, very well here. Um, and then there's the other way of looking at it, which is uh, you know what a, a senator like Tom Coburn will, would call a uh, a permanent feudal culture in which no one ever leaves and nothing ever changes, and I think that that's part of this also. So um, again, I mean, power is on many many levels. I mean, if you sort of, I mean, the, the traditional way of looking at it is to sort of look at it from from just the um, the family tree from the president on down. But really, I think especially in the age of new media, it's a much more diffuse. Uh, system. Um, it's a much flatter structure in some ways where a guy like uh, Mike Allen, for instance, uh, who whose skills match up perfectly with the sort of 24-7, um, you know, super fast ethic of, of this environment, um, you know, sort of mixed with the old shoe leather reporting, um, uh, you know, skills that he's had over many, many years, can can really thrive. And And again, there's really no rhyme or reason to it. Lebo, you know we we've been uh, we've been friends for for 45 years, and uh, we could go on for hours as we usually do uh, offline. But um, you know, as we reflect uh, on a, a great Stanley Cup win of our Boston Bruins, and and I think back to everything that you've done, uh, to think, for instance, that you were the guy who the Kennedy camp led inside to help write some of the final pieces of Senator Ted Kennedy's life, it just amazes me. Uh, the 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 access and product that you've been able to create from from the the humble upbringings of Newton and uh, and what you've been able to do with the New York Times, Washington Post, San Jose Mercury News, Boston Phoenix before that. Thank you so much for joining us on Polyoptics today and can't wait to see the book. Uh, thanks guys, this was really fun. POTUS. POTUS. History in the making. Sirius XM 124.
All right, so we're joined right now on Polyoptics by Mike Allen, uh, the the author of the playbook uh, from Politico, chief White House correspondent, but also by uh, Jeff Morrell, the Pentagon spokesman, deputy assistant secretary of defense for public affairs. Both of you having just returned from a really important and very revealing trip around the world with the secretary of defense. Welcome, gentlemen, to Polyoptics. Well, thank you. Congratulations on this successful launch of a great show. Well, I really appreciate that. Josh King and I were commenting uh, while you were uh, on this trip, Jeff, with the, with the secretary, that Mike Allen sort of did what no one, at least as far as working son, had done to this point, which is take us along for the ride and, and let everyone have an inside feel for what it's like to travel around the planet um, and, and effectively reaching out not only to allies, but to, to making really important uh, stops along the way to thank the men and women in uniform. W- was this like nothing you'd ever experienced? I know you've been around the earth with the Secretary of Defense before, but talk to us about how this one really was something special. Well, from a personal standpoint, this was a, a bittersweet last journey with the Secretary. I've been with him for uh, four years in uh, as of the 18th of this month, and uh, we've circled the globe many times, um, but this was the last of those times. So it, it uh, began, uh, you know, departing from Andrews Air Force Base. We flew to, uh, to Hawaii, where we overnighted, and uh, he had a chance to visit the uh, USS Missouri, uh, where, of course, the surrender papers were signed in World War II with the Japanese. And then from there, we went on to Singapore, where he attended the um, uh, Shangri-La Security dialogue, dialogue, an annual security conference that takes place out there. And then, of course, on to Afghanistan, which was the main focus of the trip. Four days in Afghanistan, a chance for him to say good, goodbye to the troops. And then, on the way home, stopped in, in Brussels for his final NATO ministerial. And we were thrilled to have uh, Mike Allen and, and Politico and Playbook along for the ride. Mike, as you guys probably know, is an old and dear friend of mine. We knew each other from the White House. when We were both covering the White House and the Bush administration. And I, you know, to me, it was a great treat to finally work it out so that Mike could come along on a trip of ours. I never thought he would actually want to sort of dedicate that much time for something like this, leave Washington for that duration. But he bought into it and provided a window into it that few reporters could. So we were thrilled to have him along, and the secretary really enjoyed his company. Mike, how did you decide that that you could actually go on this trip? I mean, we all know you and the way you operate, uh, or at least we think we do, and we occasionally see you taking a day off uh, somewhere down south to visit the relatives and filing, filing from afar, but it's only for a day or two. How did you decide you could make this whole trip? Well, this was a very unusual trip by the Secretary, not only the fact that uh, it was cover, covering so much ground, but also the fact that he was going to spend so much time in Afghanistan. Three nights, four days. That was the most time the secretary has spent there. I think he'd spent three nights before, but never four days. And so this was a a unique opportunity to see where 101,000 Americans, the peak in the 10 years since the war began, are serving. And uh, because uh, when you're with the secretary, you uh, travel a little better than a Jeep or uh, the way that uh, you or I might travel there, uh, we were able to have the opportunity to see six Bases. We stayed on a command base in Kabul, Camp Eggers, Camp Eggers named for a Navy SEAL uh, who was lost uh, in a uh, vicious fight. He went out in open 
uh, went out, uh, left his cover, went out in the open in order to get a better radio signal to try to save some of his colleagues. Just one of the many amazing stories that we heard while we were there. And then went out uh, to five of the forward uh, bases. Uh, the most amazing part for me was that these had been built out of nothing in the sand. Just a few years ago, there'd been nothing where some of these bases were. Now there are runways, there are uh, helicopter hangars, uh, dining halls. It's amazing. Taking the Secretary of Defense or, or joining him on a mission like this uh, ultimately uh, comes down to a lot of the interactions. Uh, he, he spoke to uh, a number of folks in, in official capacity, uh, but it was those moments with the troops and the pictures that we saw and the insight that, that Mike Allen's reporting gave us, every single one, almost to a to an individual picture, gave a great sense not just of who the Secretary of Defense is, but how honored and important it was for him to be with the folks uh, at each one of these stops. I mean, this was genuinely significant for the, for the troops. Was that your appreciation of it as well? I mean, these weren't such highly staged events that that you might find on the presidential level. This was open collared shirts, uh, no podiums, just a microphone on a stand and some very sincere discussions. Absolutely, Adam. I mean, there's a few things here. The trip overall, if you step back, is showed the sort of the range of the responsibilities of a Secretary of Defense, right? From engaging with um, security leaders in Asia to then going into Afghanistan and relating on a personal level with the troops to then engaging with Europe on, on NATO matters, you know, whether it be NATO reform, Afghanistan, Libya operations, but you sort of had the whole range. Now, whenever he travels, which is extensive, as you can just go on our website and look at Travels with Gates at defense.gov, you'll see just the incredible mileage he's put on over the last several years. Uh, we take with us almost a full press cabin on the E-4B, which is the doomsday plane we fly on. It's a 747, an enormous plane, specially configured so that we have uh, secure communications no matter where we are, and so that he can uh, carry out his responsibilities as being the, ch the, the key link in the chain of command from the commander-in-chief to the combatant commanders on the ground, so that if an order had to be executed, it would go from the president to the secretary to our military leaders. Uh, without that link, you know, it, it doesn't work. So we are up there, and the ability to refuel and fly for many, many days on end if necessary, including in the event of a nuclear attack. Now, um, so we've got 18 seats in that plane for the press. I was happy to have Mike along as, as one of those. Uh, because he could provide something a little bit different than the New York Times or the Washington Post or the L.A. Times or the Journal or the networks could, which is he could give you the behind-the-scenes details of what it's like on that plane or what it's like when Gates is handing out coins to the troops. But to, your, to the stagecraft of the events, in particular in Afghanistan, these were really minimalist events. It's about him speaking directly and and candidly with them. And he is almost constitutionally incapable of being anything but candid with them. And his only admonition to us when we set up these events is, I want a lot of troops. I don't want them standing out in the sun for too long before I get there. They got enough to do, let alone worry about being there at attention for him to arrive. And he goes, and I want none of them behind me. They never should be pawns in, in, in this, in, in sort of the stagecraft of of his travels. We are always mindful of just making this about him, addressing them head on, give a few remarks, and then take a few questions, and then hand out coins and pose for photographs. That's it. Mike, 
you had firsthand view of, of, of the Secretary of Defense spending time with, with people in all of these areas uh, in, the, in the forward operating bases. Will you talk a little bit about what it meant to those, those men and women to, to receive something like that from the Secretary of Defense? Well, our soldiers and uh, Marines out there mostly experience either terror or boredom. And so this was a way for there to be something in between, a chance for the secretary to be able to express his appreciation to them, but also for them uh, to be reminded that the nation's leaders are watching, the country's media are watching, uh, the fact that there was a Fox News pool camera there, the fact that there was Voice of America pool radio there, the fact that there was a Reuters uh, pool photographer there, the fact that you had New York Times, AP, Bloomberg, Reuters, LA Times, Wall Street Journal, Politico, watching them, talking to them, asking their feelings. That's so important uh, because uh, uh, 1,503 Americans have fallen in Afghanistan. Uh, I can tell you that there's no indication of our footprint uh, shrinking uh, there much. Uh, we're still uh, building runways. Uh, most of these uh, commanders uh, in these four bases are being replaced one-to-one. And so even though there may be a drawdown in these tough, isolated places, we're going to be there for a good long time. And it was very important for them to know uh, that we care, that we're paying attention, that we want to learn what they're doing. And Jeff and his colleagues uh, set up some fantastic briefings uh, for us with the commanders there who were able to explain the specifics of what they do, which is so humbling and so fascinating. Some of these young lieutenants, uh, just a little bit out of West Point, are out on patrols uh, making momentous split-second decisions. Do I shoot this person or do I try and bring them in and make my friend? At the higher level, some of these commanders, they're uh, working with their uh, uh, counterparts in Afghanistan to uh, make them civic leaders and security leaders. I was very touched by the fact that a number of these commanders who are rotating out, who are going back to their families in Colorado Springs, Colorado, or Colleen, Texas, or wherever their base is, are have a, all of them have all the ones I talked to have children back home, and yet they have kind of mixed feelings because they don't want to leave their Afghan counterparts. I spent time at ABC News as a producer while Jeff was a, a reporter there covering the White House. He's gone on to serve for as many years as he's talked about across administrations, serving our nation. Your service is important. But Josh and I, too, spent our time in the White House where that stagecraft that we're acknowledging, and I think people who are listening uh, on, on Sirius XM 124 here at Polyoptics, uh, might not understand when we put a president together with troops, oftentimes, and I hate to be cynical about us as practitioners, we do put them behind the president. We want a relationship shot that shows me the face of the boss, the troops behind. And you know what? That's exactly what you did not see over the last 12 days. If you look at it, if you look at the images that came out of that trip, and Jason Reed of Reuters Travel with us, who's just a dynamite photographer you guys know from the White House, and who actually on his own time during the trip put together a montage of photographs uh, over the, Gates' farewell to the speech to the troops that is just brilliant and is on YouTube for you guys all to check out. 
but um, all the, the the pointed images that have come that came out of the trip were of Gates from behind. It's of his back looking out on the troops. You never saw a head-on shot of him with troops behind him. It's the one rule he had for us. One other thing you, you guys may find of interest is that we didn't do these for the first two years of Gates's, well, the first year and a half of Gates's ter- uh, term, because he, he he was not completely comfortable in the town hall type setting. When, he, when it looked like we were leaving at the end of 08, he decided, I did want to engage larger audiences. And so we started to set them up, and he became more comfortable. But it was always about a chance for him to say a few words and have an honest discourse with the troops. He didn't want it to be too staged or stilted. So it's hard to retain sort of the genuine interaction, but we've done our best over the years. I get exactly what you're talking about, about too staged or too stilted. I was along there with Adam during the Clinton years. You know, the temptation was, boy, uh, men and women in uniform in BDUs or battle dr- or, or dress uniforms do look so good in a backdrop. But uh, it is it does treat them as props. One thing that we did in the Clinton White House was, we we would give them places to sit to the left and to the right, angled to the stage, so that they would have a good view. And if photographers coming along wanted to make the picture of the of uh, our armed forces with the president, they could make that. Um, but we uh, always, and I'm I'm with you on that, Josh. I think that's to me that's the cutaway shot, the side shot. That's the way to do it. But the directly behind is where I, is where he and I have have some issues. That's right. Now. You know, as as sort of unplugged as you portray this trip, Jeff, uh, and I look at your amazing website, and I look at the 664,000 travel miles that, that the Secretary has done and all of the data that you do provide and the m- remarks that he makes at each place. I mean, a huge amount of work goes into it. Can you talk to us about how how far out planning for a trip goes like this? And Adam and I certainly want to know how many challenge coins you packed to go along Have with you. to talk about the challenge coins. I think he handed out, I think, in Afghanistan, 2,500 wow. uh, coins. We think in his, the course of his career, over four and a half years, that he's probably handed out 50,000 coins. And, you know, that people would say that's, you know, that adds up, and it does, but it means so much to our men and women in uniform. And he, I think, has handed out probably... 95% of his coins, at, I would think, at a minimum, downrange, meaning in Iraq or Afghanistan or in, in hosp- military hospitals. So it goes to the folks who really are, are out there earning them. Um, with regards to how difficult it is to put these on, listen, it's a huge undertaking, and there are hundreds of people who are probably involved in it. I mean, our crew alone on the E-4B... Uh, is probably 50 to 100 people uh, between the flight crew, you know, the communications team, the security team. We obviously have a terrific, we couldn't do it without an amazing advanced team and a trip planner team. Um, so, you know, and that's a bipartisan team. There are a couple holdovers from the Bush administration. There's a couple new hires from the Obama administration. They've blended. They've worked great. Um, and we just together build it based upon what we know our guy likes. And as a result, you know, they all love serving him, and we all do our best, and the trips come off, you know, amazingly well, considering how complicated they are. Mike, you've got some amazing datelines in the stories that you filed for Politico. Aboard a U.S. military aircraft over Kansas, Camp Eggers, Kabul, Afghanistan, forward operating base Walton in Kandahar, Afghanistan. And look, I know that you get hundreds, maybe thousands of emails a day, feedback of the things that you put into Playbook. This is a very different 
series of posts that you had over the last few weeks. What has the feedback been that you've received about the picture that you've painted of this secretary making his farewell tour around the world compared to the daily Sturm and Drang that you get about everyday Washington? Well, people were mainly fascinated by it. This is such an incredible operation that we have there. There's, uh, Jeff, what, 30 provinces, right? 30-some provinces. Kandahar is one of the provinces. There are 100 U.S. presences of some sort, whether it's a command, uh, whether it's a combat outpost, whether it's an observation outpost. So the scale of what we're doing in Afghanistan is amazing. And I followed pretty closely, but I had no idea of what exactly was being done day to day there. And so I tried to bring that to, uh, to life uh, for people both to uh, pay tribute to what's being done, but also uh, just because it's an amazing thing our government has undertaken and we didn't we need to know about it. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, the, the relationship that, that the two of you have, uh, I think, helped all of us to be able to come along on that trip. Uh, the mutual respect and the, and the trust that exists, uh, someone in your position, Jeff, and, and for Mike to have been able to feel confident and, and so curious to be able to set aside what he does so well every day and go on this adventure and bring us with him uh, has painted a picture that stands in stark contrast to what we so often talk about in polyoptics, which is a bit of a, a cynical, uh, calculated uh, arrangement to try and put together uh, imagery. It's a risk-reward. Uh, but in this case, the only risk was, what, what do we get if we don't do this? And you don't bring the rest of the country along for it. Mike Allen, thank you. We will let you go. Everybody stick around. We will be right back with more Jeff Morrell here on Polyoptics. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. This is POTUS. Welcome back to Polyoptics here on Sirius XM 124. POTUS, Politics of the United States. We're back talking to Jeff Morrell, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs, uh, a fellow who I used to work with at ABC News and has been the Chief Pentagon spokesman for years now. Jeff, uh, now you have a transition to look forward to, uh, and it is such a unique record of service that someone like Robert Gates comes into office following Don Rumsfeld uh, changes the tone at the Pentagon, and that an incoming Democratic president, uh, Barack Obama, decides that the best thing to do for the Department of the Defense, the services, and the men and women in uniform is to keep that person in his position for as long as he will stay. Uh, and now uh, we're coming to a, a new Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, who again has such long service in Washington. How do you plan for this sort of communications transition to a new secretary? Well, I, I am, first of all, I'm not going to be a part of that. <laughs> I'm going to bow out as he does, or shortly thereafter, uh, even though, you know, uh, a lot of uh, Director Panetta's team, are, uh, some of those guys are friends of mine, and I respect the heck out of him and wish him nothing but the best, but I think he needs to have his own guy. I think part of what's made me pretty effective, if I may say so, for the secretary is that we developed an extraordinarily close professional and indeed ultimately a personal uh, relationship but i think you need to have that connection in order to really effectively communicate for for the the principal and and this is a building where the the bureaucracy is so strong and it will it will try to steer you and communicate for you in all sorts of ways 
unless there is a, a really good connection between the spokesperson and the secretary so that his message is getting out precisely as he wants, um, the, the bureaucracy can almost overtake it. Uh, so I think it's time for me to go and for uh, Director Panetta or Secretary Panetta to bring in his own guy. But I'm, I'll be glad to help in any which way I can in terms of advice before we leave. But they'll be great. Then they'll do it according to his style, it, not necessarily according to Gates' style. I'm sure it will be different. It may be more relaxed. Um, but he'll figure out his own way to communicate and connect with the troops. The, the Secretary, uh, right here at the end of the week, had his final press conference with his press corps um and i I think during the process during the his service he really it appears uh grew to enjoy the folks who covered him had great respect for them and and what their job was in in helping to uh inform people around the world and, and and keep an eye on what uh dod was was doing and it sounds a little bit like on this trip the secretary really sort of, I wouldn't say he took the gloves off, but he was very candid and very open and honest, even uh, to a fault, some might say, about where we are and, and how he admonished our, our NATO allies uh, about the realities that he sees. Uh, we know that he's going to go into retirement and, and, and work on some books. Talk to us a little bit about how his perception of Washington and, the, and this nation in general have have colored uh, what you've seen in, in terms of his ability to communicate with all of the audiences that he has to touch in, in a job like this. Yeah, well, I mean, I, th- I think a lot has been made of this sort of campaign of candor, as some journalists have put it, uh, for these last few months. But the truth is, that's the way he's been for the for the last four and a half years that he's been on this job. I mean, he you go back to when he was having his confirmation hearing. The first question from Chairman Levin: Are we winning in Iraq? No, sir, we're not. I mean, that's just the way he's been. He's plain spoken. He's to the point, and I think people really appreciate that. And I think that that's that's one of the reasons I think he's so respected, respected and effective. Now, one of the things he also did, Adam, very shortly after taking office, is he gave a speech at the Air Force and the Naval Academies, making uh, where he said that to treat the press or the Congress as the enemy is self-defeating, and we need to have better relations with both of them. And so he's worked hard. And I have tried to, on his behalf, to really develop good relations with, with the press uh, corps. I mean, I, I, he's better at it than I am, frankly. Uh, I can get more easily frustrated, but he's had really an extraordinary bond and, and an extraordinarily long honeymoon in Washington with the press corps. But I think it's because he treats them with respect. And we do a lot of things, like on the road, This is we, we do a press cocktail party, uh, on every foreign trip we take, where we take one night, we meet, we have a drink, we talk off the record in a, in a more relaxed environment so they can get to know him as a real person. And he treats them with enormous respect by speaking very candidly to them. And they have never, ever burned us in, this, in the whole four and a half years in terms of ever speaking about off-the-record events. And we just today, at the end of this press conference, he had a cake for them, which thanked them for their commitment to covering our troops over the last several years, and then posed for photographs with each of the press and and gave them a challenge coin and then said goodbye. But they've had a very, very strong relationship over the years. Look, a lot of us see see the DOD through mixed eyes, uh, and and we don't really pay so much attention to the writing reporters because covering the military is a very visual uh, aspect. And so, you know, there was the Diane Sawyer sit-down, but 
But just to, yeah, we, we haven't even talked about that. Well, let's talk right. about let's talk about that for a second because, you know, if if I was at I ABC, I might have, you know, been on the team that it that had come to to produce this. This was something that really, at the high end, made people hyper aware of of where he was and what he was doing. It also had great value, I thought. Well, we've done this in the past. As you know, I mean, there are beat reporters who cover us who do a great, great job, and it's no disrespect to them. But having an anchor travel with you into a location like that guarantees not just coverage, but a significant chunk of coverage that you just wouldn't get otherwise. And the wars are not getting covered by the TV media to anywhere near the degree they were. So this is a way to get focus, get attention, and get time. So we were pleased. Uh, you know, she and her team were great, and uh, we appreciate the fact they came a long way and dedicated as much time as they did. Point of curiosity for you, was the interview done, I think it was in the, on the plane, was it done while you guys were on the ground, or was it in flight? No, that was in flight. The, that, she met us in Singapore and flew in with us to, and did an interview in his uh, conference room, which is the quietest part of the plane, and so that went well. And then on the ground, what we provided to make this, I, try to, I, I recognize the fact that you know, in this competitive environment, people have got to have something exclusive or unique. So what we provided that was unique on this trip was the first joint interview ever done between Gates, uh, with Gates and Petraeus, which is sort of very, unu- it's very unusual from a protocol perspective for the Secretary of Defense to sit and share the stage with one of his commanders. Um, but they have an extraordinarily close relationship, and it's been a really f- instrumental one in terms of turning Iraq and now Afghanistan. So we thought it would be interesting to have them sit down together, and I think ABC was thrilled to have it. What's next for you, by the way? I'm just talking to a bunch of people, trying to figure out what exactly is next. Luckily, there's been a lot of people who have come forward with some really interesting and, and hopefully lucrative ideas, but I'm sort of sorting through them right now and excited about the prospects. As a communicator, uh, somebody who spent so much time uh, covering the news in a, in a really uh, strong journalism career before you, you jumped the fence and started serving uh, in, in now two administrations. Uh, your insight and your, your sort of experience uh, puts you uh, in, a, in a now special place that, that folks occupy in Washington. Do you think you'll stay here uh, and, and be in this mix, or do you see yourself leaving the D.C. area where you grew up? Well, I, I, you're right. I did grow up here. My family's here. My home's here. I dragged my wife here from Chicago. You know, so it, there's a lot keeping me here. I think I've built a little bit of a reputation here. I got a lot of friends and contacts here. But as I always said, uh, I would go wherever the best opportunity is. Could very well be here, but I'm not opposed to necessarily, um, you know, chasing it where, wherever it may be. But my hope is we, we can stay here and, and continue, you know, working here. I, I just recall one of my first times uh, at uh, the Pentagon a, as a young producer, realizing that uh, you know a reporter who I knew and and really respected in Pete Williams at NBC had spent time in the job that you're doing, or yep. a version of it, and yep. and so many people have had that post, uh, and in to varying degrees uh, had politicized it or or or. You know, been under incredibly trying times. I, I admit that your perspective on it brings a lot because you have respect for everyone who's doing the job that you know so well, and you've brought that insight and and been a two-way partner for them. 
Well, I'll tell you one thing. Two, I know you, you guys probably are done with me, but let me tell you two quick stories. Pete Williams, when I took this job, and Ken Bacon both reached out to me, as did Tory Clark and Larry Dorita. So, uh, you know, you always hear that happening at the White House, but people did it here, too, and they were really generous with their advice. And they all said one thing, or at least those who had been reporters previously said, it's a good thing you're a reporter because information flow, ironically, does not naturally flow to the spokesman in this department. You've got to hunt down information. So that was the first really good bit of advice I had, and that's been, that's been absolutely true. Less so now, but certainly then. And then what the secretary told me, which was in our interview, which I thought was so interesting, he said five things. It was less of an interview about trying to elicit information from me as he wanted to just tell me five things. Number one, I don't want a pit bull at the podium. Number two, I want you to be as cooperative as you possibly can be with the press and with the Congress. Uh, number three, I don't know is a perfectly acceptable answer. Number four, you only are as credible as you are, have access to me, so you've got to be with me. We've got to travel. You've got to be in meetings. The press needs to know you, are, you have access and are close to me. And five, in a building full of yes-men, you know, it's just the nature of this place, salute and say, yes, sir. He goes, I need you to be as open and as candid and as honest with me as possible. Tell it to me like it is. So for, for a prospective spokesperson, that's sort of music to your ears. I mean, we were destined to have a strong relationship just based upon that. Jeff Morell, you've just defined a great boss, uh, yeah. whether it's Robert Gates uh, and the great uh, public service record that he has or, or, or in corporate America or in the private or in the public sector and government. You couldn't ask for anyone to give you a better uh, set of marching orders than those. And you do follow in a great heritage uh, that goes from Pete Williams to Ken Bacon and Tory Clark and the work that you've done under Robert Gates. And you can only wish that uh, uh, Director Panetta and the team that he'll bring to the Pentagon will, will be able to accomplish as much as you and Secretary Gates have had. It's been a great pleasure to have you on Polyoptics. Josh Adam, I really appreciate it. Congratulations on the show. Well, let's talk soon. Thanks, man. Good to talk to you, Jeff. Okay, guys. See ya.